If you have your Bibles and you want to follow, um, you can open it back up to 2 Kings 17. Um, It's quite a complex passage, really. Um, And let's pray and commit our time to the Lord. Dear Lord God and Father, we do thank you that we can now come to your word. We do pray that you would help us to understand it. Pray that you would give us the concentration to follow. To pray that that which is from you, by your spirit, you would make it real to our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, There there is a build-up to this passage. There's a history behind everything that the Scriptures speak about. I want to draw your attention just to three verses, really. That's verse 14. But they would not listen. But they were stubborn, as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. And then verse 19, Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And then verse 41, So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children, as their fathers did. Mixing true faith and false faith. These were the people of God. They were those that were chosen by God to represent him, to walk with him, to have the blessings of that. And at the very end, we have this sad, sad verse that they mixed up. They didn't totally say, no, there's no God, we're having nothing to do with him. They mixed up uh, uh, the true God and the idols of the people that were around and about them. And this is a sad, sad tale of what takes place within the hearts of every single one of us, and we're tempted to do exactly the same. The people in those days are the same as the people in these days, and it's a very great danger that we can get into. Now, there were two kingdoms in Israel after Solomon. The kingdom was split. There was a northern kingdom, Israel, and there was a southern, smaller kingdom called Judah. Israel generally had bad and kings that would lead them into idolatry and the southern kingdom Judah had a mixture but God was the one who had given promises to them and he was bringing about the promises of the saviour but it still shows a sad indictment on the state of the human heart that does not know God and even the heart that does experience the living God will also be tempted to mix up the idols of the world and the truth of the gospel. It's something that we're all tempted to do. Now, there's a brief history here. The people became a nation within Egypt, and they left with Moses. You know that. You know the story concerning that. And they left for the promised land, 
and they were given the law during that time when they were within the wilderness. So God showed them both by his own holiness, a law being a representation of his holiness, not just the Ten Commandments, but how they were to live, and also by the way in which they were to worship. God gave them ways in which they were worship, and so the whole picture was the salvation of God, the holiness of God, and the sacrificial sense of worship, showing them that there was to be God who would deal with them in mercy according to his great love, and it's a whole picture of Christ. So it's almost like every day they were supposed to be looking at Christ, looking at the holiness of God, having the holiness of God affecting their lives, and noticing that it was through a sacrificial system that there would be one day when they, well, every day they needed to have their sins atoned for. They had to have them cleaned. Now we come to the New Testament and when Christ comes and we know that Christ is our atonement, our sacrificial lamb, the one who atones for us and deals with us but also expects us to live in holiness. It's not all of a sudden, well, that's great, now we can do whatever we want, we can live however we want, we can behave however we want. No, we still deal with God who is a holy God. And we are called to show God's holiness. And we are called to do that humbly and walk humbly with our God because we know it's not because of our own efforts, but because of God's love for us and his sacrifice for us. And we have this constantly before our eyes, like they had it constantly before their eyes. Evil was to be removed from the land that they went into. And your life is to be one that is holy, that shows the holiness of God, that reflects Christ, that isn't just one of emotional feelings because we now live in a world that follows its emotional feelings rather than absolute truths. We don't follow our feelings, we follow the word of God that shows us God's holiness. It's not our ideas of what God's holiness is, it's the revealed holiness of God. And in our worship and in the way in which we live, we show Christ because it's more than just an outward show, it's an inward show. And so it's an inward reality. So if you don't remove every sin or every idol, you are doing exactly what these people did. You are mixing the world's ideas, the idols of the world, together with true faith and you put on uh, uh, almost like a makeup of Christ over, the, over your life. And, 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 and it's destructive. It's very easy to follow idols. It looks like a good thing to do. It feeds our pride. It might feel, feed our intellect. We think we're so clever. We can understand things and we can explain things. It looks like success and riches and how we want to relate, and how we want to have girlfriends and boyfriends, and all these other things, practically it affects everything in our lives. But we put them before Christ, or we water them down. We water the gospel down, and you will struggle, and your faith will fail when you start to do that. And that's what was taking place here to say that you don't have such temptations is a lie because these people had those temptations and we are no different really from them. Uh, just as an aside 
before we just stepping sort of outside of a, a, a two Kings seventeen for a minute, uh, understand this: that sin doesn't come to you in ugly ways. It doesn't come to you and say, "Look how bad I am. Become part of my badness." It doesn't do that sort of thing. Sin comes promising all sorts of benefits and good things, and so it looks nice. Sin looks attractive. It looks as if you want to take part of it. It really does promise great things, advantages, but sin lies. That's what it does, and so that's why it's easy to fall into sin, because it gives an advantage to you. Lie a little bit, and you will get a great reward financially. Just tell a little mistruth. You've got to do it to get forward in life. Just do something like this. Nobody will know. And you lie a little and you cheat a little and you, you con people just a little bit because everybody does it and you can't get on if you don't do it. Or just gossip about somebody because you won't get, they'll get promotion if you can really just undermine their reputation at work. Then you'll go forward in work. And if you don't do this, then you'll not go forward in work. And they'll go forward and they'll get the rewards and you won't get the rewards. So do it, okay? It's nice to, because it promises a great reward. It promises great things. It's attractive as sin. It makes you feel like it's pleasure to go out with this boy or with this girl. Because then you'll feel like somebody loves you. Even if they're not Christian, but they really look nice, or they've really got lots of money, or something like this. It's attractive, you see. It's not ugly. It's not something that puts you off. It's something that draws you in. Money, riches, success, etc. But the ends of it are the ways of death. And what works is this, that really, you become known to be a liar. And you know you've lied. And the people that closest to you know you've lied. And not only that, it affects your children that know you lie. And you have to cover up a lie with a lie. And so it eventually works out that the sin that tempted you in has lied and it becomes destructive to you. Every sin becomes destructive. But it's always dressed up as a nice, attractive cake that invites you to eat it. Adam and Eve were invited to be like God. They were invited to show their own value and their own power. You're invited to do that. There's always harm in sin. That's why we flee from evil and, to, and the scriptures warn about it and it's warning about it here. So after going to the promised land, judges were given. There were no kings. It was a time period of about 500 years when judges ruled the land. And what was the significance of that? It was this, that the people of Israel, or God's chosen people, had his system of worship. It had his holy ways. And as they walked in them, not only did he protect them, he blessed them. And as soon as they went away from those, it was a very physical situation, those blessings were removed. Other nations were used to come in and discipline the people of God, and they, they repented and turned to Christ, or turned to God. There was a repentance when troubles came, and that's what you often experience in your own personal lives. You work it out yourselves, you do things your own way, and then all of a sudden, God brings troubles into your lives, 
and you say, why is this taking place? And you one day suddenly think to yourself, well, I've walked away from God. Now I need to repent and I need to cry out to God. And you cry out to God and God actually comes in and helps you again. But you do it time after time after time. These did it time after time after time to such an extent that eventually God said, he sort of almost washed his hands of them. But the judges were constantly drifting away from holiness and true worships and they were sort of saviour that came in. They weren't just people that stood and became sort of, you know, judges in law courts. They were people that came in and they were saviour figures that God used. They weren't perfect by a long way. They were still sinful, but they were saviour figures that God used to rescue his people and pull them back to himself. And then they sort of ruled the land for a period of time, helping the people to be godly. And Christ rescues you constantly. We thank God that we're in the, the, if you want to say, the New Testament period. We know that our Saviour has come. We see our Saviour. We're not just looking forward to one that will come. We're looking to the one that has come. And he's died. And he's rose again. And his spirit is within us. Helping us to be holy. Convicting us. You might never have come to Christ. You might not know the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that helps you both not to sin, but then when you sin, brings you straight back to Christ again. You need to do that today. You need to recognize that. But he rescues you from the sin and the consequences of sin in your life. He's not just a picture of a judge. He is the great Messiah, the Lord of your life, the center of worship, and he is holy, and he expects you to be holy. So the people wanted, then the people uh, were fed up with the judges, well, not fed up with them, but they wanted to be like the people that were around about them, so they asked for a visible king. Give us a king like the nations around about us. We're no different. We look at the world and get ensnared and want something visible. His values constantly Light, but, the, but, we, but we take on board their same values. We take on board their same uh, 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 aims. We do it almost automatically without stopping and without thinking about it. We want to be like them. They have an easier life. They have a more richer life. They have value systems that... That, that they're free to do just what they want and live how they want without any responsibility towards God and without any sense of holiness. And they seem to be at ease. And that's what, and, and, and the, the people of Israel wanted that. But they wanted to hold on to the culture of Christianity still. They wanted to keep hold of that, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Samuel's response. In 1 Kings 8, 10 to 18, just to read a few short verses uh, uh, to them was this, when they asked for a king. I think I've got it right. No, 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 I've not got the right one. I think I should be in... 1 Samuel, I think it is. It will just give me a minute. Yeah, 1 Samuel chapter 8, 10 to 18. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will 
be the ways of the king who would reign over you. He would take your sons and appoint them to be to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plough his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He would take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He would take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He would take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He would take your male servants, your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He would take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Right, so what's taking place there? You put a king up and all of a sudden he's going to tax the life out of you. Everything that you own, your fields, even your children, are going to have to go and work for that king. You know yourselves. You hate paying taxes. Maybe you don't pay them. Maybe you, uh, but, but, but it makes you poorer. You've got a ruler now and you've got to come under the ruler's rule and it's constricting you and it's restricting you and that's what takes place in the world. There's rulers that are powerful and they constrict and they restrict and you're tied to them and he's saying to them, you didn't need to have this. You are free within me but that's what's taking place. And so first of all, the people of Israel were given Saul, who was a, a, a king that seemed humble, that became proud, and God rejected him. Then we have David, the young man, who was a fighter of Goliath and a picture of the Messiah king, really. Even though he sinned, he continued to walk humbly with God. That was a difference. A picture not of Christ who sins, but a picture of Christ, who is the God who steps into humanity, Humbly, taking our place on the cross. And first, by some people, he is hated because of his very humility. Our earth, our heavenly king. So the king's rule. Remember the northern Israel, and it's dealing mostly in, 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 in 2 Kings 17 with the, with, with, the, with the northern Israel that was coming to the end of it, its uh, 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 standing, really. Judah continued, and eventually the Messiah came through Judah. God was continuing his promises. He always does. There is nothing that you can do that will, const will, will prevent God's promises. There will nothing that you can do or the world can do or the kings of the world can do that will prevent the church of Jesus Christ being victorious forever and forever and forever. But you can claim like these were to be walking with God and have secret sin, not knowing or worse, not being bothered that God has actually left you. You might be claiming Christ in your lives and in your words and you might not have a clue or not understand that God has left you and the way to understand it is are you still excusing and walking in all sorts of sins and all sorts of wrong ways and just pretending to know him. Keep in mind God's promise of salvation through Jesus Christ is not down to your ability. 
is down to his promise and what he has done and is still doing. He builds his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He is a very great saviour. Now, here we have in uh, the first, uh, in, 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 in this chapter 17, we have this king, Hosea, a poor king, a bad king, the, the, captured by the Assyrians, trying to make all sorts of political uh, uh, alliances and not keeping his word. And eventually the Assyrians came in and said, well, no, you're not going to do that. And they took over the land and they rejected it. And the, they were walking in the customs of the idolatrous and godless nation, secretly, you could say. And, uh, 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 but the external influences of the world dominated. And that's what I want you to think about. What are the external influences that are dominating you? What are the aims and the ambitions that are really driving you? Are they really uh, just trying to stick God onto your aims and ambitions so that he will give you success? Or are you really looking for the real success of walking humbly with your God and the real failure is falling into sin and the real victory is not being tempted by the world even if it means that you lose and don't have the sort of lifestyle that you think you should have. You can reject God and still have uh, uh, Christ on your lips, if you want to say. You can still be showing that you're a believer, but not being. And they walked in the customs of the idolatrous nation until they became dominated by them. There was no power. There was no power in their, if you could say, Christianity. There was no power in their faith. There was no power of God in them. In Matthew 22, in 29 to 33, you know, there, were no, there was no power, no longer knowing the scripture or the power of God, the Pharisees. They didn't understand it. Everything external, nothing internal, no truth, no light. Is there truth and light in your Christianity? The danger of accepting the external culture and worse still, like we read in verse 41, so these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. And their children did likewise. They'd brought this curse on their own children, as their fathers did. So they do still to this day. Do you think you're strong enough to take on the world's values and hold on to Christ? You are not. Do you think you can work, use the world's ways to your own advantage and walk with Christ? He will not. He does not bend to your ways. He is the Holy One. You cannot exalt Christ and walk in the ways of the world. Now listen, there, 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 there's a philosopher, that, that one of the most probably influential philosophers in these days that's affecting us. He's not around now, he's died, but he, he really sets the culture that's influencing us around and about us. Influencing modern culture and therefore influencing us. Both his father and grandfather were pastors and, um, uh, uh, and this was about a year before he died. I condemn Christianity, he said. The Christian church has left... Uh, 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 it's just introduced depravity. It's made every value in it 
I hate, is what he was saying. Because it's talking about loving the unlovely. It's talking about helping the weak. It's talking about Christ who died on the cross. God on the cross, he despised. The church will never accept the world's values that exalt strength and power and human glory at the expense of loving and helping and building up and giving yourself for others. It will not accept it the other way round. As we read in Matthew, the church will not accept the world's role. You are called to be salt and light. You are called to be so radically different. You are called to be victoriously different. And the world won't have a clue, except some will see it and say, that really makes sense. Why? And then you will be showing Christ. Nietzsche said, what's good is what heightens your sense of power. That's what the world says. What's good is what heightens your sense of power. The way in which you raise up to be someone important. That's what he does. What does Christ say? The greatest among you, let him be the one who serves. Be like Christ. Bad is what comes from weakness is what Nietzsche says. It's bad to be weak. Or it's not bad to be weak. Nor in a million years to understand your own weakness and your great need for a saviour is what you need. Christian piety he hated. He despised the God of the weak. He despised the God on the cross. And we shout, no, in the cross we see the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, the power to change your life, the power to make you good, the power to work, holiness within you, not to feed your own sense of pride and power is what Nietzsche unleashed on the world. Unless you become as little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Take time to weigh up your lives and set it in the light of the scriptures and see how you're doing. Are you seeking power or are you seeking humbly to serve other people? Are you seeking to lower yourself that others can be built up? Whose world are you living in? They did evil. They forgot holiness. They became stubborn, as we read in 1714, uh, uh, um, uh, but they would not listen. They were stubborn. They'd been told. The prophets had told them. They'd been warned by God. You are warned. You are told. The scriptures are in your hands. You know the truths, and still you don't take notice of them. It's talking like that. I am right. I know. I will do. I will get my advantage, and then I will give lip service to God. Lie a little, gossip a little, twist and turn a little. Sin promises great things and the ends thereof are death. Your personal advantage, you dare not put it before God. Did you know that greed is idolatry? 
It's not just having a little idol in your room. You say, well, I never have an idol in my room. Are you greedy? Well, you're idolatry. You're putting something before God. Your own personal uh, 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 desires. You're putting them before God. Are you idolatrous? Your lust will lead you astray, the word of God tells us. God commands were clear, love God. You know, it's interesting that when you take the commandments, there was four of them that dealt with how you approach God. He was dealing with, uh, 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 um, have no other gods before me. You're not making any idols. You're not bowing down to idols. You're keeping the Lord's day holy. And then there were six relating to how we relate to each other, about honouring mothers and fathers, and about not killing, about not lying, and not committing adultery, and and not being jealous, and these things. And, 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 And Jesus summed them up in two from Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you love your neighbour as yourself. We give lip service to loving God with all our hearts, all the mind, when we really don't love our neighbours as ourselves. That's really the difficult one to work it out practically. But he expects that holiness from you. That's Christ's holiness standard. It's not come to Christ and then do what you want. It's come to Christ and then you're expected to take that Sermon on the Mount and to feed it through your life and your heart so that it really does radically change you. Inwardly, inwardly. Now thank God for Jesus who came. And because of your sin, you know you can't put these things into practice. You know you're sinful. I mean, the, 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 the Matthew Sermon on the Mount, the one thing that he shows above all things is Christ is God because nobody else could actually speak those things unless they were. And he gives heaven's principles. But he expects, and you can only enter into them through a new birth and a change of life. So he's speaking to Christians on the Sermon on the Mount. You then, you then who are, live according to his ways, not to become legalistic, to have such a changed heart that you put in uh, uh, holiness that is way and above what the law teaches, to be quite honest. An inward love for others, an inward love for God, a deep sense of desire to live in a holy way and to flee away from sin and from your own selfishness and our own internal ways. And these people here, what had they done? They'd taken over the land of the Assyrians and all of a sudden there were lions and things like that that came in uh, 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 to their places and they were making them uncomfortable. It says in in, in verse 26, So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them. Behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. So they still had some idea that the law of the God of the land was good. And all of a sudden they had problems. There were lions, there were discomfort. So therefore what do you need to do? You need to send people back as priests so that they can tell them God's ways. But the people that came back, weren't able to tell them just God's ways because they took hold of the idols and the culture that was surrounding them from the Assyrians and they mixed it in. They mixed it in. They were resettled but they weren't willing to stand for truth and God wants you to stand for truth. He always leaves a testimony behind us, our God, in his great mercy. But there was always a mixing with their own gods. I mean, uh, 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 thank you to Abinami who read those very difficult words out of their own gods. Look at 29. But every nation made gods of its own and put them to the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made every nation in the cities which they lived. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth. 
the men of Cuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz. There's a whole list of their gods and Tartak. And the Sephavites burned their children in the fire to Adramalek and Amalek, the gods of Sepharaim. Now, how wonderful. Burn their children to the fire. That's how far you can go. You don't think you can go that far? We burn thousands of children on the fire of abortions every year. We do do it. We just hide it. And we put nice makeup on the top of it. These things are happening. The sexual revolution that's taking place means that we are teaching our children all sorts of things that they should never know, destroying their very lives before they've even started it. And you think that it won't affect you? Where to be a teacher or to work in medicine will mean now that you will lose your job because you cannot do those things as a Christian? Or will you just... Because it gives you a wage and it gives you a way of life, will you just turn a blind eye to those things? These are radical things that are affecting us and they're affecting you and influencing you. And even if they're coming at you drop by drop so you don't understand the radicalness of it, you're called to be radical followers of holiness in Christ. You want to see what it means, as I say, I turn... uh, 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 you again to look at Matthew 5 through 7. Internalize the teachings that Christ puts before you there. And let your holiness be beyond the holiness of the legalists and the Pharisees because it's internal. It works through Christ in you. His power within you. And seek the power within you of Christ and his ways. So put first... The kingdom of God. Let your influence be Christ. Get rid of the song, every idol that I've known. And we don't think we've got those idols, but we have. They're affecting your very lives. So search your heart before Christ and come to his holiness and seek holiness. Not legalism, but holiness. Seek holiness. Don't put it to one side. Be known. As a child of the living God, for his name's sake. Amen.